Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 17 of our ongoing journey through the Old Testament. This time, I'd like to take a moment in this session and spend some time on the interpretation of the Old Testament, especially how the people closest to its origins worked with this book. In our modern world, we have a very specific idea of how to read a book. We have certain expectations about literalness and clarity and meaning. There are some academic movements that sought recently to question those conventions about what authors mean and how much we can know. For the most part, they have made a general mess of things, and fortunately, those of us who actually live in the real world take them less and less seriously. It might be hard for us to understand that books have not always played a consistent role in societies. For instance, it's a commonly accepted notion that in medieval times, when books were few or cloistered away in monastic libraries, The bookless masses relied on prodigious memory skills to compensate for not having books they could reference. However, this is not an accurate picture for the simple reason that the segment of society that performed the most remarkable feats of memory were the clergy, who also had access to most of the books. My point is that in the medieval period, books played a role very different from what we're accustomed to. They were not reference materials so much as memory aids. You used a book to load its knowledge into your own mind, where the medieval education had developed some remarkable methods for manipulating and analyzing that information mentally. Knowledge in a book that no one had memorized was considered not so much preserved as embalmed. The written word in ancient times also carried certain cultural idiosyncrasies. One of these was that written texts were assumed to be read out loud. Silent reading was extremely rare and sometimes regarded as a sign of special intellectual brilliance. Another assumption was that the literal interpretation of a religious text, particularly in the Judeo-Christian tradition, was best done through allegory or metaphor. Literalness was considered a trap both by the rabbinic interpreters and the church fathers. On the Christian front, Origen of Alexandria, one of the most brilliant of the early church fathers who lived in the second century, laid the scholarly foundations for allegory as the preferred means of understanding the biblical texts. As a side note, the fixation with the literal reading of the biblical text in modern times doesn't really start to show up until the Renaissance, particularly the early Reformation, when courageous scholars were making translations of the Bible into the vernacular so anyone could read it. This business of making translations required these scholars to dive into matters of textual transmission in order to identify, or in some cases to reconstruct, a better version of the Greek or Hebrew text from which to translate. It prompted renewed studies in the grammar of these languages, and, eventually, the quest for a better and better text and translation led to the notion that the Bible should be read literally that every word meant just what it said on the surface, that metaphorical renderings were reckless and involved too much human philosophical meddling that might sully the original word of God. 
The problem with this approach, as we mentioned in part one of this podcast, is that it's very easy to paint oneself into a corner from which one must embrace or resort to absurdities in order to justify the ideology that the biblical text must be taken literally. To be fair, Origen was a bit late to the game. His rabbinical counterparts had understood for centuries that the plain meaning was open to question. In fact, they probably would have found the notion insulting given the Jewish assumptions surrounding the biblical text. Let's look at a few of those assumptions. First, there was an assumption that the text had multiple layers of meaning, some of them hidden and only to be revealed by careful scholarship or inspiration. This could lead to some truly inventive results. In late antiquity and medieval times, numbers began to play a role. This is called gematria, where the numeric values of Hebrew letters were played with and manipulated much the same way modern numerologists do. The craze a few years ago about a so-called Bible code is another example. The second major assumption was that there were no superfluous words in the Bible. Every word, every letter, had a specific meaning. If there was a repetition of a word or a place where the same phrase appeared more than once, each instance had its own interpretive value. We'll see an example of that later on. There is a third assumption that is perhaps a little harder to articulate and isn't often stated explicitly, but it is the notion that the authority of the Bible text is such that one can stretch that text to extraordinary lengths, not only stretch it, but bend it, twist it, and tie it up in knots in order to make a point. But this assumption holds that the text retains the ability to give its authority to whatever new interpretation comes out. Clearly not everyone is going to agree with particularly tortured interpretations, but debate was an accepted form, and still is, of resolving and paring away excessive exegetical weirdness. There are two major categories of interpretation in Judaism. They are called Pesher and Midrash. Pesher is both a method and a literary genre by itself. It works by trying to tease out those hidden meanings, often by paraphrasing the text. The hidden meaning is often referred to as the Raz, which is a word in both Hebrew and Aramaic that means mystery. Ironically, the Hebrew word pesher is a biblical hapax legomenon, which is a fancy word meaning that the word only shows up once in the entire Bible. I invite you to find a way to trot that one out the next time you're at a party. The location of this hapax is in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1, which reads, Who is as the wise man? And who knows the interpretation, Pesher, of a thing? By contrast, the book of Daniel, which is much later and was written in Aramaic, has the equivalent Aramaic word Peshar 31 times, nearly all of them referring to the interpretation of dreams. Pesher interpretation exploded during the intertestamental period. Pesher interpretation is a very popular method for reading the prophetic books such as Isaiah or Ezekiel. Even though a careful reading of the prophets will show that they were not really into prediction as much as we tend to assume, 
there has always been that tendency to try to read them that way. Pesher likes to make reference to contemporary historical events, which can be useful for dating certain Pesherim, which is the plural word for Pesher. An important function of Pesherim was to contemporize the spiritual or prophetic message to advance the notion that the prophet, under consideration, was speaking to the interpreter's time and only that time. Another role played by Pesher was to validate and vindicate the theological stance of the interpreter and their community. Pesherim can be broken down into two general categories. Scholars speak of continuous and thematic types. Continuous Pesher is like a running commentary on a text, with interpretive additions often worked into the very text itself so that the original and the interpretive material appear side by side in a more or less seamless new text. Thematic Pesher takes a topic or theme or argument, then uses biblical verses pulled from a wider range of texts to support or elucidate the position being taken. Pesher was very popular among the sectaries of the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea Scrolls include numerous Pesherim, many of them looking for signs regarding the end of the world. The New Testament employs many examples of taking Old Testament verses and reading messianic import into them. This is classic Pesher, as were the efforts in early Christianity to study books like the Apocalypse of John looking for signs of the Second Coming. In fact, go to any Christian bookstore and you will find that the art of Pesher continues and is alive and well. The other form of interpretation, Midrash, is a much different animal. You might say that it is necessary because of the limits of scripture. Once you've set the canon and decided what is or is not authoritative, it's only a matter of time before you find a problem that the text just doesn't address. Like Pesher, Midrash is both a method of interpretation and a literary genre. It is also a verb, meaning to construct a midrash around a particular text, and serves as yet one more proof that any noun can be verbed. A midrash is an imaginative expansion of a biblical text used to make a point, or to supplement the text. For instance, as rabbinic law grew in its complexity, cases and circumstances arose on which the Torah was silent. To address such a deficiency, a rabbinic scholar might construct a midrash on a particular text in order to justify a new rule and give it authoritative weight. Midrashim are always constructed on biblical texts. There seems to be an understanding that the essentially unlimited authority of the Bible constituted a special case where most expansions would retain their moral and ethical vigor, even if the text was strained near to the breaking point. This is one thing about Judaism that I have always found remarkable and even admirable. Judaism isn't afraid to subject their scriptures to rough handling. They will bend it, pull it, push it, 
tear it up into little pieces and then put it back together again if that's what it takes to make sense of it. And all of this is done in a spirit of profound reverence and respect for their sacred texts. By contrast, I've seen other interpreters from other traditions become aghast at the very thought of exploring allegorical avenues, playing with the language, or other methodologies that seem quite tame by comparison. Let's look at an example of Midrash. This one applies to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 20, which involves a repetition of the word tzedek, which variously means justice or sometimes righteousness. Remember, one of the assumptions of Jewish interpretation is that every single word in the Bible is there for a reason. Here is the verse, tzedek, tzedek, you will pursue, in order that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And here tzedek is rendered as justice. If the Torah contains no superfluous words, what could the second tzedek represent? The question can be answered in the form of the following midrash. Quote, Justice you shall pursue. How do we know that one who is acquitted by the Bet Din, law court, cannot later be convicted? The text says, Justice, justice you shall pursue. How do we know that one who is convicted can go back to court and be acquitted? The text says, Justice, justice you shall pursue. In other words, according to this Midrash, the repetition of the word justice speaks to the idea that while one may be once convicted, the next time they may be acquitted, and vice versa. Justice is a continuous process. Another favorite Midrash of mine concerns a story about Moses who, when God called him to lead Israel out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 4, protested that he was not a good speaker heavy of mouth, and having a slow tongue. The Midrash, from Shemot Rabbah, uh, 1, section 31, relates the following story based on that passage in Exodus. As a baby, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household, but Pharaoh began to suspect that the child was more than he seemed. The child was seen throwing Pharaoh's golden crown to the ground, Pharaoh wanted to know if the child was merely being a child, or was there something else at work. He ordered that a platter be brought before the child. On the platter was a gold coin, some versions have a precious stone, and a hot coal. If Moses reached for the gold coin, it would signal that he knew what it implied, and he would be killed as the other male Hebrew children had been. Moses began to reach for the coin, but an angel pushed his hand aside, and it closed on the coal. Being a small child, he naturally tried to put it in his mouth, burning his lips and tongue. The result was a permanent speech impediment, but also an object lesson that God was constantly watching out for Moses and his safety as he grew up among the Egyptian royal courtiers. Obviously, there is some serious invention and extrapolation going on here, but that's what Midrash was all about. It sees scripture as a wellspring that keeps giving even after the canonical boundaries have hardened. There are two other forms of interpretation, or perhaps more accurately, interpretive literature that we should touch upon. One of these is Targum. Targum is an Aramaic word that means translation, 
especially one designed for liturgical use. Recall that the Jews spent 50 years in exile in Babylon, and those who returned were born in Babylon and spoke Aramaic as their mother tongue. Since Hebrew was the language of the liturgy and the synagogue, it was important that they understood the readings from Scripture that made up part of the service. So the synagogue scriptural readings were followed by the same text from an Aramaic translation, a Targum. However, the Targums did more than just provide a word-for-word -word rendering of the text. Often they inserted some additional editorial material that sheds light on how a verse was understood at the time. Since most of the earliest Targums still extant were first written down around 100 BCE, and were in common use in the early 1st century CE, they are extremely important for understanding Judaism during the time that produced the early Christian movement and other major social upheavals that eventually led to a permanent scattering of the Jewish people after the end of the Jewish War and again following the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt around 135 CE. The last type of interpretive literature is one that I think I've mentioned before, and that is what we call pseudepigrapha. These were entire books of scripture, or at least were written to resemble scripture. The word pseudepigrapha means roughly falsely attributed, which is to say these books are purported to be the words and works of famous figures in Jewish history. After the Torah and prophetic canon were closed, Anonymous writers with great religious passion and zeal decided to circumvent those limits by dressing up their ideas and interpretations of the Bible in the personas of Israel's greatest religious and political leaders. Many of these works are still around, but you are more likely to find them in specialized scholarly works. Some of them also show up in New Age bookstores in editions reprinted from long ago that have since passed into the public domain. If you feel like tackling this body of literature, I strongly recommend you use the two-volume edition and translation of the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha edited by James Charlesworth, which is quite scholarly but still very accessible to the lay reader. Examples of pseudepigrapha include titles such as The Apocalypses of Enoch, The Sibylline Oracles, The Apocalypse of Zephaniah, The Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, The Testament of Adam, The Book of Jubilees, and so on. Many of them have an eschatological bent. Others concern ritual and worship, festivals and the calendar, and still others contain prayers, hymns, oracles, or philosophical works. This kind of literature was very popular, especially in such troubled times when social and political upheaval, along with the mixture of Hellenistic, Zoroastrian, Jewish, and God knows what other idea streams, turned the Palestine of antiquity into a bubbling cauldron of intellectual and political instability. Ironically, one of the major themes of these books is liberation but especially liberation through military and political victory, understandable with the victory of the Maccabean revolt still celebrated in the national memory. But this ran counter to much of biblical teaching. The idea of liberation by force, however, was impossible to resist. It plunged Judah into not one, but two utterly disastrous wars against Rome, wars that their apocalyptic literature insisted they would win with God's help. 
After the final defeat of the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Jewish people took the hint and abandoned the pseudepigraphic literature. Christianity, however, picked up much of it. Some of the more benign books live on in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles under the label of the Apocrypha. The Pseudepigrapha, while it never fully acquired the weight of canonical scripture, had a discernible influence on early and medieval Christianity. It proved popular with a nascent Christian church, anticipating its own version of the end times. This has obvious implications for our own time. It clearly comprises a cautionary tale that scriptural interpretation is only as good as the world one seeks to create with it. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Music